If you got that joke, you uh, probably were in your prime in the 60s. I wasn't. I don't know why I'm saying that. I'm sorry. Hebrews chapter 11. I like Wednesday nights because I could say stupid things. It's not, it doesn't feel as consequential. <laughs> Sunday mornings, you say something dumb, you think the world is going to end. Wednesday nights, you get like at least eight dummies. I can say eight dumb things. I still feel okay. Be a little more myself. Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to finish the chapter tonight. It's been a wonderful time studying Hebrews chapter 11. I hope that your faith has been built this summer. That, that was the goal. The Lord really wanted to build our faith, you know, and as we learned about these great lives of faith, men and women that God used tremendously and blessed immensely, I hope that it stirred in you a real sense of how much God wants to use you, how much He is able to use you. And uh, tonight I, I think we'll be even more encouraged, but let's pray before we get into the Word. Lord, thank you for these Wednesdays that we've had together this summer. It's been an awesome time fellowshipping, worshiping, and digging into your word. And, and Lord, you've taught us so many things. Seems like we forget way more than we remember. And yet, Jesus, you gave us that wonderful promise that the Holy Spirit would bring to remembrance all that you taught us. And so, Holy Spirit, the things that will be taught tonight and the things that we have already learned, we trust you to bring them to remembrance at the moment of need. When we need faith, when there's trials, when there's difficulties, when we're afraid, when we're discouraged, when it seems like too much, when we feel overwhelmed and even lost sometimes, Lord, we ask the Holy Spirit you'd bring to remembrance these wonderful truths that you've taught us in your word and and you would stir up in us fresh faith and sincere faith. God, you're so worthy of our faith. You're so perfect in all your ways. You've never failed. You've never let anybody down. You've made good on every promise you have ever given to your people. And so, Lord, we bank on that. As we very obviously are living in the last days and things are going to get more and more interesting and certainly more and more challenging for the Bible-believing Christian, we trust you, Lord. We trust you in your sovereignty. We believe you in your goodness. Teach us tonight things that would be profitable, useful for your purposes in your kingdom. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we'll be starting verse 32 tonight, going through the end of the chapter and even dipping into chapter 12 for just a brief moment. And we'll be talking about faith in trials and faith that conquers. And if you want to read with me verse 32... The author of Hebrews, and by the way, who the author of Hebrews is, is a debate. We don't exactly know. Uh, a lot of people think it is uh, Paul. Others think it's Priscilla. Uh, there's other theories that have been forwarded. Um, we don't know for sure. We can't be dogmatic about it. I lean toward Paul. But when we're in the Pauline epistles, and I know for sure it's Paul, if I quote something, I'll say, Paul said. But tonight, you know, whenever we're in Hebrews, we'll say, the author. So, because we don't know for sure, other than the fact that it's the Holy Spirit, amen? amen? Reading in verse 32, the author says, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and all the prophets. So, he spent the whole chapter telling us about all these different incredible lives. And, and he says, in essence, here toward the end, there's a lot more that I could say. There's many more lives that I could mention. There's many more people who had awesome lives of faith in whose lives God did amazing things. But time would escape me if I told of all of them. And I, being much more long-winded than the author of Hebrews, time would certainly escape us if we were to tell of each of these stories as we've done with the previous verses. So we can't do that. Time would fail us. But what the author wants us to know in this verse is that faith extended throughout the entire his, history of Israel. We see there the mention of judges, Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. And after the judges came, of course, the period of the kings. We see there mentioned David. And there was also the, the prophets. And we see there mentioned Samuel. And we can't talk about them all, but you remember Gideon. 
And if you don't remember Gideon, do a little bit of homework. Read Judges 6 and 7. That's where you'll read the story of Gideon. Just take you a few minutes. It's awesome. It's an incredible story about Gideon. You know, Gideon uh, was at a time in Israel when a bunch of enemies were going to come against them. And Gideon wasn't where he should have been. He should have been on the threshing floor. That was his job. And the threshing was always done up on a high place, you know, where they could throw the wheat in the air with a winnowing fork and the wind would come and blow away the chaff, but the valuable wheat would fall to the ground and it had to be done on a high place because that's where the wind was. But there in Judges chapter 6, we find Gideon down in the wine press, which was a low place where they would mash down the grapes, of course. And he was down there because he was living in fear. And he was acting out of fear. And he was reacting from fear. And the Lord is so graceful. The Lord met him in that wine press. He should have been up on the threshing floor doing his job, being where the Lord had posted him. But he was down there out of fear, but God still met him. But we can't go into that story. It's, it's too... You, I can't... It's, look, already we're going to be here all night if I do that with all these guys. But read about Gideon who boldly destroyed idols, the idols of his father and, and some of the idols that the people had adopted. He was mightily used by God to defeat an army much larger than them, namely the Midianites. And yet we see about Gideon that he was a man who doubted God's word initially. God told him what he was to do. And Gideon doubted it and continually asked for uh, these fleeces. Lord, if it's really you, then do thus and so. And the Lord would do it. Okay, Lord, but if it's really you this time, then do this and that. And the Lord would do it. Well, Lord, if it's really the you, then do so on and so forth. And the Lord would do it every time. And now Christians have adopted this stupid thing of fleeces. I, I, I don't know how we get that. That was a failure of Gideon's faith. That was not an act of faith. That was a lack of faith. And yet you always hear Christians say, well, I'm going to put out the fleece. Really? Why not just trust the Lord the first time? So Gideon was supposed to do. Yet the wonderful thing is we see that he had a failure of faith or maybe said more correctly, a smallness of faith and yet here he is in the hall of faith, in the hall of fame, so to speak. A similar thing with Barak. Barak you can read about in Judges chapter 4. We, we can't talk about him, enough, not enough time, but read Judges chapter 4 over the next couple of days. He led the people of Israel in a dramatic victory over the Canaanites and yet we see that when he was supposed to first go forward, he hesitated. And Deborah had to come along and encourage him. He had the word of the Lord, the command of the Lord, the leading of the Lord, and yet he hesitated in it. And God raised up a woman, Deborah, who came alongside and encouraged him. Again, we see a smallness of faith, a minor failure of faith, and yet he's mentioned here in the hall of faith. Same with Samson. Samson was used mightily to the Lord to defeat the Philistines. And yet he never lived up to his potential. There was a tragic end to his life because he was enticed uh, through sexual immorality and, you know, the, the seductions of a woman, never living up to his potential, never fully being who God had called him to be, never exercising the fullness of faith, and yet a degree of faith, and still God did incredible things in his life. Read about him, please, in Judges 13 through 16. And then Jephthah. Jephthah was used by God to defeat the Ammonites. An incredible victory. And yet we see that Jephthah is the one who made a foolish vow and stubbornly kept it. Just a, a bad mistake. Just some smallness of faith there. Read about it in Judges chapter 11. It's a similar thing with David. David was that great king of Israel, a remarkable man of faith, and yet he failed so miserably with Bathsheba, committing not just adultery, but then murder of her husband. And he also failed miserably with his kids. I mean, he just failed when it came to being a father and failed so horribly as a husband. And yet, here he is in the hall of faith. This is not to condone sin. This is to encourage faith. Jesus said, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could move mountains. Your faith doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be perfect. It's just got to be alive. How is it alive when it's active? When, when you act upon it. When it grows and it blossoms and it blooms in your life. God knows, according to Psalm 103, that we are made from dirt. He has compassion on His children. He knows that we are just dirt. And He just calls for us to have littleness of faith. And with our littleness of faith, God can do such tremendous things. And even in the midst of our failures, these men all failed, some of them horribly. But that's why Jesus is a Savior. Savior. 
It's not the well that need a physician, but the sick that need a physician. Amen? That's why Jesus came. And he saved you even knowing that after you were born again, you would still fail. He went to the cross even knowing that. And so, seeing these men in Hebrews chapter 11 in the hall of faith shows us that weak faith is better than unbelief. And we don't have to have perfect faith, but we've got to have faith. And concerning these lives, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 says, For these things happened as an example to us. All those Old Testament stories happened as an example for you and I. And as we move into the next few verses, the author of Hebrews is just going to mention a few little key phrases, just the tiniest little vignettes, just sort of allude to some Old Testament stories that are recorded there in the Old Testament for us to learn from as our example. Now, the author of Hebrews was writing to Hebrews. He was writing to the Jewish church. And so he assumed that they would have a working knowledge of the Old Testament. So in the next two verses, he's, he's not going to explain himself. As I said, he's just going to allude to a few stories, believing that his audience would have a working knowledge of the Old Testament. I encourage you, if you don't, if you haven't already, to dig into the Old Testament. It's not old in the sense of being useless anymore. But that's not the case. We don't believe that about old things, do we? When somebody matures, they become more valuable. There's more lessons that they've learned, you know what I mean? It's wonderful. And it's not old in that it's null and void. And so I encourage you, if you haven't, don't spend all of your time in the New Testament. You've got to get into the Old Testament, which is the context for the New Testament. And when you dive into the Old Testament, the New Testament comes alive. It just comes alive. And so dig into the Old Testament. And so tonight, as we just allude to a few of these stories that the author of Hebrews does, if, if you're not familiar with some of the names, don't be discouraged, be encouraged to get into it. And if you would just read Joshua and Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, you would have most of what everything that he's referring to tonight. Now, you could read that in just a couple hours. All those books of the Old Testament. Just start with Joshua, go to Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, and then 1st and 2nd Kings. And, and you'll have all this background knowledge. So in verse 33, the author, referring to those previous ones he mentioned in verse 32 and others, says, Who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, putting foreign, foreign armies to flight. So he mentions here some victories of faith. And we're going to break it into three threes. We're going to break it into triads here. And the first three little stories that he alludes to, or multiple stories that he alludes to, are national victories for Israel. National victories for Israel. But they also make us think about the victories that we have by faith in Christ Jesus. For example, when it says, and conquered kingdoms. Well, if you read the book of Joshua, you'll see that they went into the promised land and they conquered kingdoms. If you read the book of Judges, there's a continual conquering of kingdoms that God called them to conquer. And of course, there is no greater conqueror than David. Now, for you and I in the New Testament, we have even greater revelation through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 8.37 says that, but in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who loved us. That we are more than conquerors. They conquered kingdoms, but we now having the promises, having the Messiah, we are more than conquerors. Amen? Uh, the second thing there is, it says that by faith, they performed acts of righteousness. And we see that in the life of David, we see that in the life of Gideon, we see that in the life of Samuel, so on and so forth, that by faith, they performed acts of righteousness. But look at the New Testament parallel for you and I. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. 
It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're saved by faith, but we're saved for good works. You've got to understand that. And God has prepared good works beforehand for you and I. He calls us in verse 10 there of Ephesians chapter 2, his workmanship or his masterpiece, his poema in the Greek. You're, you're, you're his prized work and he's prepared good works before them, beforehand. Now, these men of old by faith performed acts of righteousness. We have the fuller revelation of the New Testament that tells us that those acts of righteousness are already laid out for you and I, and by faith, we can walk in them. God has good things planned for your life. Contrary to that, Satan has bad things planned for your life. But by faith, we walk in the good things God has ordained. Amen? It says also that by faith, they obtained promises. Alluding there to Gideon and, and Barak and David and others. And look what Second Corinthians says in chapter 1 and chapter 7. For as many as may be the promises of God, in Christ Jesus they are yes, wherefore also by him is our amen to the glory of God through us. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. They are available to us in Christ Jesus. They are fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And we have the word that tells us that. And then it says in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilements of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Since we have these promises, walk in them. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling that is ours. Walk in a manner worthy of the good works that God has prepared for us. We have a far greater degree of revelation and leading than those Old Testament saints. And yet by faith they conquered kingdoms, by faith they performed acts of righteousness, and by faith they obtained incredible promises. Now the next triad refers to personal deliverance of some of the great lives of Israel. But again, it makes us think about the deliverance that we have through faith in Jesus Christ. It says that by faith, some of them shut the mouth of lions. You remember who did that in the Old Testament, right? Most notably, Daniel is the one that we would most remember, but also Samson and also David. Remember David? David boasted at one time and said, I've killed a lion with my bare hands and I've killed a bear with my hands and I'm going to take out this uncircumcised Philistine too. By faith, they shut the mouth of lions. When Daniel went into the lion's den, the lion's den spelt doom. When he was in the pit, at the lowest moment of his life, by faith, the mouths of the lion were shut. He just believed God. He just trusted God and God worked that. Now, there is a New Testament lion that we need to be to a certain degree concerned about. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And by faith, we can shut the mouth of the lion. Amen? He's a liar and he loves to roar. Notice what it says about him. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I've been told, I haven't checked it out for myself, I don't know if it's true, but I've been told that in the, uh, what do you call a bunch of lions, a pack? A pride. Yes, thank you, Sue. In the pride, the lion that roars the most is the lion that has lost his teeth. He's the lion that has lost some of his tenacity, his veracity. Is that a word? I don't know. You know, he's lost his meanness. He's been, he's been defanged, so to teeth, and so, so to speak. And so I've been told that. <sighs> Help me, Jesus. I better take my shoes off. And so I've been told. The, the toothless old lion is the one that prowls around and roars, seeking to intimidate. He's all barking, no bite. Now, Satan has been defeated. He has been disarmed and defanged. 
And so he's that roaring lion always seeking to intimidate. Seeking to scare. And you know the roar of a lion can be heard up to three miles away. At least it says on the plaque outside the lion display at the Santa Barbara Zoo. I haven't checked it out for myself. I don't know. You better be a Berean tonight and check these things out for yourself. But the roar is very loud. But Satan has been defanged. He is a defeated foe. And he might roar for a while. He might pursue for a while. He might intimidate. But in the end, Christ Jesus always has the victory. Amen? Amen. And so we have the promise of James 4, 7. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. It's twofold. We too often quote uh, the latter and forget the former. But remember, submit therefore to God and then resist the devil and he will flee from you. So by faith, we shut the mouth of the lion. By faith, it says here, they quench the power of fire. Who immediately comes to mind? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We don't have time to talk about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But Nebuchadnezzar, You remember King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. He made the giant golden statue. And he said to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and all the other people, when you hear the music play, bow down and pay homage to the image. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, young Hebrews, said, we won't do that. This is a graven image. This is an idol. This is a false god. We will not bow down to this false god. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come on, don't be difficult. Everybody else is doing it. Everybody's going to do it. Even Nebuchadnezzar says, come on, guys. I'm going to give you another chance here. When the music plays and everybody else goes along with it, just bow down and pay homage to the image I made. Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, could have said in their hearts, all right, check it out, guys. Nebi's a pretty bad dude. Nebuchadnezzar is nasty. We don't know what he's going to do to us. Let's not be foolish here. Let's go ahead and bow down, but it won't mean anything in our hearts, but let's just go along with the crowd. It's, it's, it's no big deal. Well, it's no big deal from man's perspective, but from the perspective of God, it's an abomination. And so they said, sorry, Nebuchadnezzar, we can't do it. And Nebuchadnezzar heated the furnace seven times hotter. And he said, throw them in the furnace. The furnace was so hot that when the guards threw them in, the guards got burnt up throwing them in. And we're told there in the text, it's very explicit in the Hebrew, we're told three times that when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the fire, they were bound. Read it in the book of Daniel chapter 3. They were bound. It says over and over again, they were tied up. It says it three different times. They were tied up. They got thrown into the fire. Nebuchadnezzar fully expecting them to burn. Nebuchadnezzar looks in and he says to his assistant there, didn't we throw three into the fire? Didn't we throw three into the fire? And he says, yeah, we threw three into the fire. And he says, I see four dancing around in there. And one of them looks like the son of God. One of them looks like the son of God. And he says, bring him out of the fire. And they come out of the fire. And we're told expressly in Daniel chapter 3 that not a hair on their body was singed. We're told they didn't even smell like smoke. They didn't smell like the furnace. Their clothes were not burned. They were not harmed. But one thing changed. The ropes that had them bound had burned up in the fire. It was the only thing that burned up in that tribulation. Now the reason they went into that furnace was because they obeyed God. Had they compromised and been disobedient, they could have avoided the furnace. They went into the furnace for obedience sake. And when they went into the fire because they obeyed, who was there with them? Jesus Christ. And the only thing that suffered lost was that which had them bound. They went up, they went in bound, and they came out free. And that is a truth that we need to lay hold of tonight. You can rationalize. 
You can listen to the whims of men in the opinion of men and think you ought to do thus and so when God is very clearly calling you to do this. And I've got to tell you that when God leads you, he will often lead you into a furnace because he knows that it is in the furnace where those things that have you bound up will be burnt off. And he knows that it is in the furnace where you will discover the presence and the person of Jesus Christ most profoundly. As long as we're just going along with the crowd and bowing down when the music plays and doing what everybody else is doing, even if we don't mean it, so to speak, we miss the presence and the person of Christ Jesus. By faith, they quench the power of fire. Now, the New Testament equivalent for you and I, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 says that we ought to be taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the enemy. You know, Satan loves to shoot fiery darts at you and I. Flaming missiles. And we're given here a biblical promise that with the shield of faith that is being covered and protected by the promises, the person, and the character of God, we extinguish the fiery missiles of the enemy. That's a promise. Count on it. Bank on it. Take it to the bank. He's always going to shoot at you. He's not going to give up shooting at you until we go to be with the Lord. But he's been defanged. His bark is louder than his bite. And if you've got the shield of faith and let it be enlarged tonight, you can extinguish, you can quench the power of the fire even as these saints of old. The next thing we see there is that it says they escaped the edge of the sword. Moses had that experience, Elijah, Elijah, Jephthah, and David. Now look at the New Testament correspondence, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, a verse very well known to us. No temptation has overcome you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not let you, who not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. Each one of these men was faced with a situation of dire consequence. And each one of them, by faith, escaped the edge of the sword. Now there's going to be some, some times in your life that are just parting like a sword, piercing like a sword. But no temptation, and it could also be translated trial there in the New Testament, no temptation or trial has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. We all go through the same thing. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond that which you are able to bear, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. There is always a back door. Joseph took it when Potiphar's wife came to him and tried to seduce him. He bailed. He left. He ran. God always provides a way of escape. The problem is we just don't always take it. And you can't blame it on the devil because God has put parameters on temptation. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. Don't give the devil so much credit, man. The devil made me do it. He can't. God has put parameters on temptation. He will not let you be tempted beyond that which you are able to bear, but with the temptation provides a way out also. I'll tell you really what the way out is. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the power of the Holy Spirit to obey. I hope that your daily prayer when you wake up in the morning is, God, fill me with your spirit today. God, keep me from just, just disaster today. That's my prayer. <laughs> Lord, left to myself, I will make a mess. The last three here refer to personal gifts and attainments of certain persons of faith in Israel's history. But again, it makes us think of what we have in Christ Jesus. We're told there that by faith, there were those who by faith went from weakness to strength. Who by faith went from weakness and were made strong. Gideon comes to mind, of course. Samson comes to mind. David comes to mind. But also Paul comes to mind. Remember, Paul had the thorn in the flesh. There was some ailment that he had. We don't know exactly what it is. It's a debate among those who care about such things. We don't know exactly what his problem was, but there was something that troubled him immensely. And he asked the Lord three times to take it away. Lord, this is bumming me out. This is difficult. This is hard. This hurts. Can you please deal with this? Three times he prayed. Read in 2 Corinthians twelve nineteen. It says, And he, referring to the Lord, said to me, that is Paul, My grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. And Paul responds and says, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness that the power of Christ may dwell in me. 
By faith in the Old Testament, weak men and women did incredible things by the strength of the Lord. And it's when we are at our weakest that God's strength is made perfect or complete. It's been said that when you get to the end of yourself, that's the beginning of God. And as long as you're self-reliant, you, you lock God out of the equation. It says in the book of Corinthians, take heed if any man thinks he is strong, lest he fall. We're not supposed to have self-confidence. We're supposed to have God confidence. Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 7, there's nothing good that dwells in my flesh. Nothing good that dwells in my flesh. And so we're to make no provision for the flesh and we're to rely upon the strength and the power and the provision of the Holy Spirit of God. And when you feel weak, there are unsearchable, unexhaustible strength, power, and resources in Christ Jesus. It's available by faith. By faith. Next, it says that there were those who by faith became mighty in war. Many men in the Old Testament. Joshua, Barak, David. And Ephesians 6.10 is a parallel for you and I in the New Testament. It tells us, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Aren't you glad that Christianity doesn't tell you to be strong? It doesn't. The world says that. You got to be strong. You got to handle it. Jesus Christ says, let me handle it. Take my yoke upon you and my burden. It's easy and it's light. But let me deal with your burdens and your yoke. The world says you've got to be strong and you've got to handle it. The Bible doesn't say that. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might and not your own. We are told in the book of Corinthians, chapter 15, 1 Corinthians, that we're to be brave. We are to be brave. That's key in these last days, guys. We're to be brave. You know, there are key pivotal moments in church history where, where the church is chickened out where the church has reacted according to fear. And those have been destructive times for the church and henceforth for society. We are called to be brave, but that's because we know who is on our side, amen? And then when it comes to strength, well, it's the strength of the Lord. It's His might, which is inexhaustible. Man, but it takes faith. You receive it by faith. And the last thing we're told is that there were those who by faith put foreign armies to flight. David, Jehoshaphat, so on and so forth. Just one of them could put a thousand to flight, we, lead, we read in the Old Testament. And so we have 2 Corinthians for us, chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, talking about prayer. Listen to this. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful or literally they have power before God. Our weapons, speaking I believe of in this passage of prayer, our weapons are divinely powerful. What for? For the destruction of fortresses. And then it says, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Putting foreign armies to flight. Who are the foreign armies? Well, the hordes of Satan that try to invade our land. God has given us the land. Jesus Christ said we're to occupy until he comes, he taught in the New Testament. It's not Satan's, it's the Lord's. It's his kingdom. And we are his ambassadors. And when the enemy starts taking ground, listen, you've got a nuclear bomb. Forget about what Iran is doing. You have got a nuclear bomb in prayer. It is powerful, divinely powerful. It is powerful before God and has power from on high for the destruction of fortresses, strongholds that Satan would seek to set up. And if we don't stay on the guard, if we don't keep that ordered array that our personal lives and the church is supposed to be, Satan is so happy to get a finger in the door. You let him get a finger, he's a squatter. He'll get a foot in. You let him get a foot in, he'll slide his body in and he'll sit down. You let Satan sit down in an area of your life and he will entrench himself and then he will build about himself a fortress and a stronghold. So often that's the case for Christians. Satan has a stronghold in an area of their life. But be encouraged tonight, we have a divinely powerful weapon for tearing those strongholds down. Namely, prayer in the name and according to the account and the glory and the power and the victory of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. 
Now, verse 35. It says here, continuing on the topic of faith, women received back their dead by resurrection and others were tortured not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. So faith even triumphs over death. By faith, some women received loved ones back from the dead. And by faith, there was another resurrection that we'll mention in a moment. But it's interesting that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, most resurrection miracles were done on behalf of women. Isn't that interesting? I, oh, yeah, women. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, I don't know why that is. I, I think maybe, well, check it out. I have a son and I have a daughter. So maybe I do know why it is. I found myself lately, pray for me. I found myself lately, you know, so patient with my daughter and so short with my son when they're engaged in a skirmish. You know what I mean? Because she's my little precious daisy love. She's my little daisy love, my little daughter. And he's Isaiah Harley. That's his middle name, Isaiah Harley. Harley. He's Isaiah Harley. She's my little daisy love. And she could run up to him and just whack him with a Lego. And I'll say, Isaiah! Get away from your sister. Leave her alone. I find myself slightly more gentle, quicker to yield to the little girl. It's just what she does in my daddy's heart. Now, the Lord maybe can do it without sinning. He doesn't show preference, the Bible tells us. But isn't it interesting that at the request of women, he raised people from the dead? Was that a bad analogy? (laughs) Can you erase that from the CD? Okay. Anyway, it was chicks. I don't know why. Uh, In 1 Kings 17, it was a widow of Zarephath, whose son was raised by Elijah. In 2 Kings chapter 4, it was a Shunammite woman, whose son was raised by Elisha. In Luke 17, it was the widow of Nain, whose son was raised by Jesus. In John 11, Martha and Mary had a brother named Lazarus, and they wanted the Lord to raise him from the dead, and the Lord wanted to do so. It's just interesting that those resurrections were on behalf of women, but what I most want you to think about these resurrections is that they were merely restorations back to physical life, but these people would die again. They would die again, and people get so caught up in healings, and healings are a good thing. And there's healing in the atonement. By his stripes we are healed. And it's awesome when someone is healed. But every physical healing is just temporary. You're going to eventually die. Your body's going to give out. And it was the same with these physical resurrections. They were just temporary. These people would die again. It's nothing for the Lord to raise somebody's physical body. It's nothing for him to heal their physical body. And sometimes we get so obsessed with Lord heal him, Lord heal him. But every healing is just temporary. We see here in verse 35, the second part, the mention of a better resurrection. That is a resurrection to eternal life. Jesus spoke about it in John chapter 5, verse 29. And Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, speaks about the resurrection of the Old Testament saints. These that we're speaking of, which will happen at the second coming of Jesus Christ as the millennial kingdom is established. The Old Testament saints will be resurrected. But there is a resurrection that is better than physical. And we get so caught up in the physical because it's the the realm that is seen. But three times the New Testament tells us in Galatians, Romans, and Hebrews that the righteous shall not walk by sight but by faith. And it is a far more wonderful resurrection to eternal life than it is to this old life. Listen to me. If I die, please don't pray for God to raise me. Please don't. I want to go be with Jesus. If you snatch me out of heaven through your prayers, I'm going to have a problem with you. (laughs) But the fact that God did that sometimes and didn't do it other times, others he let be tortured to the point of death, knowing that they would receive a better resurrection. The fact that he didn't always save people physically shows that God doesn't always work in the same way. For those people, it was God's will that he would raise them up physically that they might live for another time. He resurrected them from the dead, but there were others that he didn't resurrect. He didn't rescue them alive. He allowed them to be tortured. Knowing, though, that there is a better resurrection. You see, we're so temporal. That's horrible. That's awful. But wait a minute, man. They're in heaven. 
And God chooses to work differently at different times. Peter was martyred for his faith, hung upside down on a cross. James was ran through with a sword. But John, they put him in oil and he wouldn't boil. I don't know what the deal was. God let Peter be crucified upside down. Let him die. Let him die that horrible death. He let James get run through with a sword. They would be resurrected to brand new life. At the rapture of the church, the dead in Christ will be resurrected. Amen? But John, they couldn't boil him. They couldn't kill him. He died a natural death sometimes later. And so I'll suggest to you that those who were tortured to death exercise just as much faith as those who saw the resurrections from the dead. I often share this with people when we pray for them to be healed and God doesn't heal them. Many times we pray for people to be healed and God heals them. Miraculous, awesome healings. Maybe God will do some of that tonight. We often say, God heal this person and he heals them. Other times he doesn't. And there's been a heretical, horrible teaching in the body of Christ that says, well, it's because of the littleness of your faith. If you just believed, God would have healed you. It's not always God's will to heal. It wasn't always his will to raise him from the dead. And I'll suggest to you that it takes just as much faith, if not more faith, not to be healed than it does to be healed. What do you mean? Well, you've got to continue in your affliction. You've got to continue in your affliction trusting God, just like Paul did. And God said to him, Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. It takes a tremendous amount of faith to ask God to heal you, for him to have, say no, and then for you to continue to walk in obedience, to walk in faith, still believing his goodness, believing his righteousness, believing his wisdom. All of these people mentioned had faith, but the results of their faith varied as God willed. Our faith does not override the will of God. It works in tandem with the will of God. It works in concert with God's will. Now verses 36 through 38. It says, And others experience mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and in mountains and caves and in holes in the ground. Twelve different types of persecution that are mentioned here. Mockings and scourgings. Jeremiah experience those. Read the book of Jeremiah. Chains and imprisonments. Joseph is a great example of that. Stoned. Zechariah got stoned. Uh, sawn in two. Isaiah was sawn in two according to Jewish tradition. Tempted. Joseph sure was tempted. Potiphar's wife. Put to death with the sword. Elijah was put to death with the sword. Being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. Almost all the prophets going about in sheepskins and in goatskins. Elisha went around in that way. John the Baptist wore some funny stuff too. Wandering in deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes in the grounds. Well, David did that for a time. Obadiah also did that. Here we see persecutions on righteous men. Horrible thing happening to good men. And by faith, it says, they experience these things. Every day, Christians are martyred around the world. Every day, Christians are martyred. And if you don't think for very long, very much in the temporal, you say, well, God, why didn't you save them? But wait a minute. History shows us that any time there are martyrs, there is salvation. Do a study on history. Whenever the church experiences persecution, there's always an explosion in church growth. Many, many people get saved. It becomes suddenly so real to the general population when they see someone willing to die for their faith. That's like those who chose to die and receive a better resurrection. You know, the context there was that they were, they were maybe a sword or something was held to their throat and, and they were told, denounce Jesus Christ and we'll let you live. And they chose to die, to remain in faith and to receive a better resurrection. And that spoke to the world volumes volumes uh, of the truth of Jesus Christ. Uh, here we have a, a modern example of two Australian pastors not being martyred, but being threatened for something that I and many of you could be threatened for any day now should the climate change in America. Uh, this is uh, from Uma Newslinks. The title, it's up on the PowerPoint here, is Facing Jail for Comparing Islam to Christianity. 
two Australian pastors in the province of Victoria will go to jail if they don't apologize for publicly comparing Christianity with Islam according to their beliefs. The Victoria Civil and Administrative Tribunal found that public expression of the pastor's beliefs incited hatred against Muslims in violation of Victoria's Racial and Religious Tolerance Act because the pastor's beliefs were deemed offensive and unreasonable interpretations of Christian and Islamic teachings. The pastors have vowed to go to jail rather than apologize for expressing their beliefs as the tribunal has ordered by faith. They will go to jail if they go to jail by faith, believing that God is true and what he says is true. Now, listen, this is not in Islamabad. This is not in Tehran. This is not in Turkey. This is not Syria. This is Australia. Australia. Guys, if it could happen in Australia, it could happen here. I'm forewarning you as I have forewarned you already that there is coming a time in this country where we will be severely persecuted for having a biblical worldview and talking about it. Do not fear the Lord is with you. What can man do to you? If God is for you, who can be against you? Do not fear such things. Be strong in the strength of the Lord. Be brave and act like men, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There is coming a time in this country where when we preach a sermon about Islam and we say that Allah is a false God, rather that he is Satan masquerading as a God and that Islam is evil as it is and that Jesus Christ is the only Savior of the world as he proved to be. There is coming a time in this nation where I and you will be threatened by our well-being or imprisonment or something else for such views. Be strong in the strength of the Lord. If you are threatened by faith, stand firm. These men will go to prison by faith if the tribunal's decision is not overturned. And the point of all this, what he talks about here, all, all these little vignettes that the author of Hebrews gives us, is that faith is associated with trials. It is natural for our faith to be tested. And since it's natural for our faith to be tested, trials should not nullify faith. Trials should strengthen faith. The Lord always tests those who are His. Satan tempts those, but the Lord tests those. There's a vast difference, amen? The Lord tests you to show you strong, to prove your faith. Satan tempts you to shipwreck your faith. I heard of a story, I read it in a commentary by J. Vernon McGee, Uh, of a community where they built a bridge for trains to go over a river. And after they built this giant bridge and, and it was hundreds of feet to the river down below, they brought two giant locomotives out onto the bridge and they put them face to face and they just let them sit there on the bridge. And a young man came up to the head of the construction project there, a young boy, and he said, what are you doing? Why are those trains just sitting on the bridge? And he said, we are testing the bridge. And he said, why are you testing it? Do you think that it'll fail? Do you think that it'll break? And he said, there's no chance. We know that it won't fail. Then why are you testing? To prove that it won't fail. God will test your faith to prove that it won't fail. If he's for you, who can be against you? God is absolutely faithful. And he doesn't bring storms into our lives to sink our ships, but rather to settle our souls. And there's a vast difference. The disciples, after they fed the 5,000, Jesus said to them, get in the boat and go to the other side. They got in the boat and what did they encounter? A storm. Notice he said, go to the other side. By the way, in the Greek, it's very clear. When he told them to get in the boat, he commanded them with military-like language. He forced them, he compelled them, he made them get into the boat. They got in the boat. He said, go to the other side. They get out there and there's a storm. Now that storm was God ordained. That storm tested them to the core. They came to the end of themselves being out on the water for at least nine hours to the fourth watch of the night. Well, the end of themselves is the beginning of God. That's when Jesus Christ came walking on the water on the very circumstances that seemed to so horribly threaten them. Jesus did not allow that storm into their life to sink their ships. He allowed that storm into their life to settle their souls that once they saw 
that God is absolutely faithful in trials, they wouldn't doubt again. In fact, the end result was they begin to worship him. Now we're told in Luke chapter, uh, Mark chapter 6, excuse me, verse 52. Mark chapter 6, verse 52. That the Lord did this because they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves and the fishes, but rather their heart was hardened. Wait a minute, that is an incredible verse of the Bible. That is an incredible verse of the Bible. God gave them a storm that almost sank their ship because they hadn't gained any insight from the miracle they previously saw. They saw God multiply the loaves and fish. Jesus handed it to them and they handed it to the multitude. It says, rather their heart was hardened. You know what I often hear people saying? God, if you would just do this miracle, then I believe. God, if you would just show me, then I would believe. If you would just do thus and so, if you would just manifest yourself, then I would believe. But Jesus said it's a wicked and perverse generation that seeks after a sign. They didn't gain any insight from the miracle and their heart was rather hardened by it. When did they gain insight and finally declare Jesus as God and worship Him? When they went into the storm and feared for their lives and yet they saw the faithfulness of God by faith. Yes, the Lord will do miracles in your life. But of greater value, the trials, the furnace, the storm, the tribulation. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 5, we rejoice in tribulation, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. You see, God is wanting to develop in you hope. The boys didn't get hope from the miracle, and so he sent them into a storm. God is wanting to develop in you hope, but there's a road to hope. Hope does not disappoint, but there's a road to it. And if you back up from hope a little bit, it's proven character. You back up from proven character a little bit, it's perseverance. And if you look at what causes perseverance to be required, it is tribulation. And Paul says at the end of tribulation, when we persevere, when we're steadfast, when we maintain the course is hope that does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. God wants you to have perseverance. That means he's going to give you trials. He wants you to have proven Christian character, so he's going to give you tribulations. He wants to give you hope, so he's going to put you through the furnace and through the fire to develop it in you. There's no shortcut in Christianity. You looking for a shortcut? You got the wrong religion, bro. There's no shortcuts in Christianity. The Lord chastens those who are his. He refines the silver, burning away the dross until he can see his reflection in it. In the last two verses, it says, And all these, having gained approval or obtained a testimony through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Namely, they didn't see the coming of the Messiah. Because God had provided something better for us. You and I, we've seen the Messiah. We look back on the cross. It's history for you and I. We see the love of God demonstrated in the cross. We see the faithfulness of God demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They didn't see it. They believed it. They didn't obtain the promise of the Messiah. They didn't see it. They didn't get to lay hold on it. We have seen it. We have far greater revelation. We have the fullness of the word of God. God has provided something better for us. We are blessed to live at this moment in history in the shadow of the cross and as his second coming is looming so that apart from us they should not be made perfect or made complete. That's a reference to the millennial kingdom. All those promises were about the kingdom and the establishment thereof and the presence of Messiah. And we will be together with them with the Old Testament saints having been grafted into Israel's covenants at the second coming of Jesus Christ when he establishes a millennial kingdom. And so it says in chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, all those people in chapter 11 surrounding us, let us also, because of their example, Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, for who, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. People, it's not a 50-yard dash. 
It's a marathon. But the Lord is coming very soon. It is so easy to fix your eyes on him right now because his coming is so near and that is so obvious from scripture. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ and run for the finish line. Run for the finish line. You know, at the beginning of the race, if you were to have a coach, the coach would say to you, you need endurance. Now, now, now pace yourself. It's a long race. And maybe in the middle of the race, when you come to a hill, your coach is saying, okay, now work hard up this hill, but you get the rest going down the backside. But when the finish line is in sight, the coach says to you, run with everything that is within you. There's the finish line. Give it your all. Now is not the moment to rest. Now is the moment to run. Run with everything in you. Go, 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 go. Run, run. Give it your all. Go, go. Dig deep. Go, go, go. That's where we are at in the history of the world. The king is coming soon. The finish line is in sight and the coach who is the Holy Spirit is saying, run, go, go, go with everything in you. The finish line is in sight. Run hard. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for these wonderful examples in Scripture. Holy Spirit, come and work these things deep in our hearts. Thank you that you don't call us to have perfect faith, just faith but living faith. Oh, Holy Spirit, come and breathe life into us. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and breathe life into this body. Give us fresh faith. Faith that is alive and active in these last days. We want to run so hard for the finish line. Jesus, if there be any sin that has easily entangled us, any encumbrance, help us to toss it aside tonight. Help us to fix our eyes on you and go hard after you in these final moments of history, Lord. As we begin to worship, if there's any encumbrance, lay it down at the foot of the cross tonight. Prayer team will be up here. If you need help laying it down, come and lay it down. Come and get prayer tonight. Grab those who are around you. Grab your friends and your family that you came with and begin to pray that the Lord would strengthen you. Pray for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Let's do business with the Lord.
Jesus, to come, Lord Jesus. 